0: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible, I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership.
1: To become a a decent endurance athlete you spend a lot of hours suffering you put yourself into the pain cave to build that strength later you're willing to endure pain now for benefit later right that's the fundamental premise it's like i'll endure extra effort now because i'll be able to do something amazing tomorrow i will do today what others won't do so that i can do tomorrow what others can't do and that had become a part of my my process right like uh, i just came to understand this is how the world works And I think that that's really fundamental when you're navigating the hardships life throws at you because it's really easy when you're already in pain to want to back off anything that causes more pain, that makes it worse. But oftentimes what you have to do is lean in more to the practices that, yeah, they're they're gonna suck in the moment maybe, they're gonna add more suffering, but you trust in that process that this is the way we get better in the end.
2: We've all heard the old aphorism, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If Beyond the Crucible had a bumper sticker, in fact, that might be what we'd print on it. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week's guest, Jason Hardrath, has spent his fair share of time in what you just heard him describe as the pain cave. That's where he developed the skills and perseverance to compete as an elite triathlete And it's also where he found himself when a rollover accident left his body broken and ended his dream of winning an Ironman title. But the car crash didn't steal Jason's goals. It only changed them. He poured his athletic prowess and passion into mountain climbing, a sport he could pursue at a championship level, even with the toll his injuries had taken on his body. He's wound up making history in the sport, by setting a record you won't believe in a way that's even more unbelievable.
0: Well, Jason, thank you so much for being here. You know, I think of my book, you know, Crucible Leadership Embrace Your Trial to Lead a Life of Significance. That could be Jason Hardra's story. I mean, that you live. You live what we talk about. It's just mind blowing, and we'll get to the accident here in a moment. And as we mentioned, you you're an elementary. Uh, school teacher at uh, Bonanza well, Elementary School. Love the name. I imagine most of your students have never heard of the of the TV series from the 60s or wherever it is. <laughs>
1: no, no, they haven't. Uh, well, I mean, I, at some point it gets brought up, right? If you, if you grow up in a place called Bonanza, you're bound to hear like, oh, like the TV show.
0: Yeah, um, and they're going, yeah no,
1: it's, it's a fun school to be a part of.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. So I'm sure you've loved spending time with the kids. So before we get kind of to the defining moment in 2015, your accident, I'd love to just hear a bit about uh, how you grew up, and um, obviously uh, you grew up with a certain, I guess, condition, ADHD. Is that the that is the term? Good, yes. So, and that's not always diagnosed as early as it can be. But so, just talking about growing up as a kid, what was your family like? What was life in school like? So, kind of. Give us the the backstage uh, pass, if you will, on Jason Hardrath and growing up.
1: Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, uh, I mean, ADHD, the term gets tossed around a lot now. Um, And a lot of people these days with modern technology, cell phones and how they're programmed to steal our attention, they struggle with directing their attention. But this was back before cell phones were like, especially in kids' hands, uh, common. Um, And like I was legitimately tested where, uh, in the test, I ended up, uh, testing with a 37 second attention span. Um, and you know, that, that's how long it took for my mind to completely lose what it was focused on, um, as a child. So you can imagine a, a kid that was tough to direct, difficult to parent, difficult to teach because easily distractible, but also I had, I had an impulsive, uh, side to it as well, where if my brain thought up an idea, Before, you know, the prefrontal cortex could analyze it and go, Ooh, that's a bad idea. I would act on it. (laughs) And so, you know, messed up relationships, got a bad rap at school, all these different things, because I would do something that to everybody else was obviously something a person shouldn't do. But to me, I would have that realization the moment after I'd already done it. So kind of grew up with this, you know, chip on my shoulder, just sort of struggling, um, and with a, a deep understanding that movement was really necessary if I was going to if I was going to succeed at all, sort of got very much in touch with moving my own body and the difference it made in the function of my mind. Um, and eventually, that became a path. As as he read in my bio, that became a path to have some success, to have some wins in life, um, by pursuing increasing, you know, increasingly difficult goals. Uh, in this physical realm it was a place I could succeed I could build even you know it even was a part of my identity you know especially through the middle school years something I could lean on where it's like well yeah but I'm good at this um, and so yeah I grew up in a small town uh, kind of grew up with it being normal to go in the outdoors and uh, it was I was in an egg town so normally it was like you go outdoors to hunt you go outdoors to ride a motorcycle um, but then later on it kind of became a meshing of the two worlds where it's like I'd fallen in love with moving my body and pursuing these big, audacious physical goals. And I knew that the outdoors were a normal place for human beings to spend time. And so it became a a natural place where it's like, well, let's express the two together.
0: Hmm. So how old were you when you were diagnosed with ADHD? Oh, goodness. Um,
1: Still in elementary school, probably fourth or fifth grade.
0: So I imagine you had supportive parents that tried to help you figure stuff out and how does this all work? And, you know, if you're not something that your kids are, like if your parents weren't like that, it's probably not the easiest thing in the world to know how to help because it's hard to understand what's not you. No,
1: absolutely. Uh, I have to, I mean, shout out to my mom. If it wasn't for her truly being a dedicated mom who was all in on supporting me. I mean, she, during elementary school, she showed up to support me at school probably more days than she didn't, you know, getting calls from teachers that I was struggling or misbehaving or getting distracted. She would show up to make sure I got the work done, you know, and if it wasn't like, I think back to those years, like if she didn't bother to do that, all of the success that's contingent on education that I've had, I probably wouldn't have had because I would have been too far behind. Um, even though I'm a fairly intelligent person, it, I just would have been so far behind that, you know, passing high school instead of being rather easy would have been difficult. So yeah, huge shout out to her being as supportive as she was through those formative years. Um, And yeah, no, my dad on the, on the other hand, he definitely struggled. He grew up in an abusive household uh, growing up with a stepfather that was super abusive. Um, And so, you know, anytime you've grown up that way, like that's locked inside you. And so he really struggled to deal with a kid that would do impulsive things and and couldn't learn from mistakes very quickly and would repeat things. And you know, he kind of, because of, I I think he came close, I can recall these times where I was scared where he came close to being physical with me. And I can sort of remember we had one of those bouts where I did something wrong and, and he got really angry and he had like knocked me down. And then he just like stopped and turned and walked off. And then from then I sort of noticed he would like take my brother out to go do stuff but not take me. He would leave me with mom. And, you know, as a like I totally understand he was doing it because he didn't want to become his stepfather now, but as a kid in the moment, like, that's a lot to try to sort through. Like, why doesn't dad like me? Yeah. And yeah, that, that became a fuel and a part of, of this, you know, this athletic identity as well. Cause that was something he re- reconnected with me through as I advanced through middle school and high school. And so that, you know, that sort of catharsis, you know, embeds it even deeper, um, cause it's like, oh, like this is something that I'm able to, you know, my, my dad cares again. Yeah. It just made, uh, you know, I guess if this sets the stage for, for tw- 2015 being all the more significant in its, uh, crucible moment for me, um, because all of this is wired good in
2: foreshadowing.
1: Yeah yeah,
0: foreshadowing. yeah, yeah yeah no, that, <laughs> that, that makes sense. And in terms of relationships, I could easily see that Jason Hardrath was a young boy, young man who could be misunderstood. You know, it's one thing ADHD, but then to not understand you're not a mean bad kid, you're just because of what you had, there was this impulse with being very difficult to stop doing what you're thinking. And so if you understand, it's easier to give grace and you know, and understanding, but if you don't understand it, which how many people do, I imagine other kids, other friends were like, What's wrong with this guy? I mean, doesn't he care? Why is he doing those Dumb things that may be hurtful. So I gotta believe it was hard to have friends that really got who you really were and fully understood the real Jason Hardrath.
1: It was very difficult to feel seen. Um it was a lot of it was a lot of uh I would say the track that was on repeat for my entire childhood was this track of doing something and realizing how much I'd messed up like in that split second before anyone even had time to react, you know, for example, uh, one of my earliest memories of, of, of this type of behavior is I was in kindergarten at a su- at Sunday school and the teacher was passing out scissors. And I had up until that point only really seen scissors used for haircuts, you know, when my mom would give me a haircut. So literally the teacher sets the scissors on my desk and as they hit my desk, not You know, this isn't like wait and Mm -hmm. like try to get away with it. This is the moment the scissors leave the teacher's hand. She's still standing there looking right at me, right? My hands grab the scissors, cut the hair of the girl in front of me. Just boom, bang, boom. And like, as, as everything goes in like slow motion. yeah. And so like, as her hair is falling, I'm like, this girl's gonna hate me. I've messed up her hair. Sure. Her parents are gonna hate me because yeah. they're gonna have to pay for her to get a new haircut. My parents are gonna get told they're gonna be furious because this is really embarrassed. Like my, I was smart enough sure. to be like, this has effects, but it was right after I'd cut the hair. And you know, so of course all of this, I'm beating myself up, like, why did I mess this up again? But then everyone else joins in, right? So it's always this moment of, I'm already down on myself and now everyone else is too. And that was, that was the track on
0: repeat. And, um, and The hard thing is for people to understand is clinically, technically, in a sense, it's not your fault because it's, well, at least it feels like it's not your fault because it's, how can you stop something that you're not able to stop? That it'll happen so quickly. I mean, you know, I mean, it sounds too glib to say that it feels, does that feel like close to accurate? It's kind of, certainly it's not as much fault as people think it is. I guess that's certainly an accurate way of putting it. But um, so let, let's move on here a little bit because you've got a lot of fascinating uh, beats to your stories. So you meant, I think we mentioned, you broke the six minute mile in uh, in middle school. Uh, you you biked across the country. So just briefly talk about that from what like Atlantic to Pacific. So, you know, what happened there?
2: Um, sort of yeah. The uh, forest dump uh, thing, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so... I I'd, I'd obviously fallen in love with running and the goal setting mindset. And so advanced from running in high school and, you know, the goal to make varsity and then the goal to go to state and then, you know, make it onto a college team. And then as I'm in college, I decided to do um, like a mini triathlon, uh, an off-road triathlon. But I'm like, well, if I'm going to buy a, a mountain bike, I'll buy a road bike as well. Um, you know, because financially responsible decisions when you're going into debt as a student. Um, (laughs) And so I get on a road bike for the first time and literally no joke. The moment I hit 20 miles an hour on my very first road bike ride, this idea hits me like a brick out of the sky. I should bike across the country. This is amazing. And it just sticks, right? Like you, you kind of laugh it off like, oh, what a silly thing to think on your first ride. But then it just sticks in there. And like for the remainder of my college experience kind of percolates. And finally, as I'm getting near graduating, I'm like, I'm about to start the rest of my life. Who knows if I'll you know, be able to make time. And one of my greatest fears at that moment was waking up 30 years later and wondering what the hell I'd done with my life. So I'm like, I have to do this now. I have to do this now. Otherwise, I'm going to become that guy that wakes up and doesn't know what he did with his life. And yeah, so I, gradu- I, I right after I graduated, I started a bike trip with a couple of friends from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, we raised money for uh, a child center to be built in Guatemala over the course of the ride um raised about $7,000 for that which was awesome. So so tell us um, again
0: where you started and where you finished.
1: Started in Ocean Shores, Washington, okay, and finished in uh, right across right across the Hudson from New York, New York.
0: Okay. Wow, Wow. that is that's amazing. One of the things I think it's be helpful for listeners to understand is obviously it's not fun I'm sure having ADHD, but there's a lot of us, certainly me, I think very carefully before I do anything. I double think and triple think and quadruple think. And, you know, because I have pretty high perseverance, once I decide to do something, it will happen. But just doing something new, oh my gosh, I am I am very unimpulsive, extremely not impulsive. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but in a sense, some of that sounds weird to use the gift word, but because you are impulsive, you you do things that most of us would be too fearful or we think through it so much, we talk talk ourselves out of our dreams, if you will. You don't talk yourself out of your dreams. You don't talk yourself out of your bold adventures. You just go for it. And so as the years have gone on, you look back and say, well, I don't know that I'd choose to exactly be like this and having the challenges I do, but there's a a good side to it, if you will, because I'm not afraid to just try anything. And sometimes that can be good, like the going across the countries. Do you get what I'm going with that kind of deal? Absolutely,
1: absolutely, no. And I think I think that is a bit of a superpower of of my type of cognition is I can handle chaos very well because I mentally I live in it every day, all the time. I'm constantly like everything's chaotic inside and disordered, and you know my ideas bounce around and connect in weird ways, and so. I'm, I'm able to step into situations where most people would be like, whoa, this is way too many logistics or what if this goes wrong or that goes wrong? I mean, I've I've literally landed um, on flights to foreign countries to climb mountains and not had reservations for where I was going to spend that night. Like just flown into a country I've never been in where I don't speak the language and just been totally comfortable that it's like, yeah, okay, I'll figure it out. Just that's that comes fairly natural to me to be able to just be in the moment and solve, solve problems on my feet, so to speak.
0: That's another superpower. I mean, to, to be comfortable in crisis, to be comfortable in chaos and trust yourself enough to know, you know, I've been there, done that. I'll figure it out. You know, having a plan is fine, but there's can be so much over planning. You never do anything and, and chaos will hit you whether you want to or not, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, COVID or whatever, there's a lot of things that are unexpected in life. And you have a superpower to deal with the unexpected, which, again, that's a blessing in some ways, you know? Oh, It's, it's sort of crazy. <laughs> so it's quite a few superpowers here. So be, I'm not being facetious. It's it's amazing. So let's talk about 2013 on or so up to 2015. You really got into triathlons and maybe the pinnacle was qualifying for Kona, which Understand it's like the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii. Probably a lot of people have seen it on TV. So, how'd you get into triathlons? And because obviously you started running and love the outdoors, but what shifted you to triathlons being a huge love for you?
1: The journey for me, as I reflect back on it, has always been this process of finding the next highest iteration, the next big challenge, and to just constantly pursue self improvement through that process of pursuing challenge. And so naturally, like I'd I'd pursued all these things in running, I transitioned up to to running marathon distance, and then I biked across the country. So I ended up having a fabulous time biking and was quite good at it, got strong at it quite quickly. I was like, well, shoot, I run and I bike and triathlons are run, bike and swim. So I signed up for a full Ironman because that's what you do when you decide you're going to do a triathlon you go right into full iron distance
0: uh, <laughs> and and how, and how long just remind those of us who may not know what's the full iron man thing what are the distances of each of the three legs
1: 2.4 mile swim 112 mile bike and a full 26.2 mile marathon run back to back to back
0: for, for most of us <laughs> mortals it feels kind of insane but
1: <laughs> wow well it is kind of insane <laughs> <laughs> But I signed up for this thing and dropped my, you know, $600 entry fee. Again, you know, responsible decisions when you're a young student in debt. Um, and I I couldn't swim more than three lengths of a pool. So just like, was like, I'll figure it out. I have, I signed up. I had six months. It's like, I'll I will teach myself to swim. I'll ask everybody I know make friends with people at the pool and ask how they, you know, what drills they do. And I'll, I'll teach myself how to swim. Like, it's just going to happen. I want to do this thing. And so yeah, signed up for a full iron distance and and really could hardly swim when I did.
0: I mean, that's, that's just remarkable. I mean, most people don't do that, but <laughs> just because of the way you're wide, you will take courageous decisions and accomplish things that others only dream of. So uh, yeah, there's there's probably a a book in there is, you may not be wide the way I am, but even if you're not, there are some things you can learn from me. So that would be an awesome, awesome book.
2: I know where the conversation is going to go here. It's going to switch in a bit to your big crucible experience. And I want the listener to kind of be able to focus on what we've talked about so far, what Jason's gone over so far. You said something really interesting in the last bit, uh, Jason, that your life became about finding that next challenge, finding that next thing that you could conquer. That next right, and you didn't have to have a a roadmap to it or a, or an outline for it. You just went and you did it. That is an important thing to have when you talk about your ADHD in some ways being a superpower, not a super problem. Uh, the ability to to look at a crucible as a superpower in some sense as a something that you can learn from all of these things seem to wait to have been churning so that when your crucible hit you were prepared not necessarily for the crucible but you were prepared prepared to tackle the next thing you needed to tackle to get beyond it. I think, is that a fair thing to say that all the things that you went through maybe didn't prepare you for the the the, the details of your crucible, but it did prepare you mentally and emotionally for it?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, it makes, it makes me think about the process of becoming an athlete right especially with in well any kind any kind of athlete i should be fair across the board even-handed but you know to become a, a decent endurance athlete you spend a lot of hours suffering like you 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 put yourself into the pain cave to build that strength later you're willing to endure pain now for benefit later right that's the fundamental premise it's like i'll endure extra effort now because i'll be able to do something amazing tomorrow I will do today what others won't do so that I can do tomorrow what others can't do. And that had become a part of my, my process, right? Like uh, I just came to understand this is how the world works. Um, And I think that that's really fundamental when you're navigating the hardships life throws at you, because it's really easy when you're already in pain to want to back off anything that causes more pain that makes it worse. But oftentimes what you have to do is lean in more to the practices that, yeah, they're going to, they're going to suck in the moment. Maybe they're going to add more suffering, but you trust in that process that this is the way we get better in the end. And that's something you have to do constantly as an athlete. And I think it was a huge mental and physical preparation for facing, facing my crucible.
2: Ironically, Warwick's book, Its original working title was Suck in the Moment. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Could have been. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty funny. No, but um, before we just, I want to comment on what you just said before we get to 2015. What you said is just so profound is that to get better at anything, there'll be times in which. of preparation you know it's it's kind of not um, you know it's often not easy to do something different. I'm, I've had a book that's uh, came out a couple of weeks ago and um, so as part of that you have to go on a speaking tour. Well I'm by nature a more reserved person. I'd rather ask questions like we're doing here than get up on a stage and speak It's not at all in my comfort zone but I realize if I want to get my message out it's all about helping people, giving people hope. I got to do it. So over time, with some training and people that know how to create a great speech and, you know, great team and friends like Gary, you know, you sort of practice and you work on it, you try different things, you get from adequate to competent to maybe actually almost to the level you can say somewhat good. But there's pain and practice saying, boy, you know, I'm awful at it. I used to say I'm the world's worst speaker. I suck at this. Well, I I'm not. I'm not the world's worst anymore. There's at least a few that are worse, <laughs> a few that suck more. And but you know, if I could, if I sat back there and says, I'm not going to do it because I'll be ridiculed. Well, then you got to lean into the pain, trust the process, follow the steps. I mean, everybody has those examples, so it's so true. So let me get to 2015 because that was really one of the defining moments. So talk about 2015 and the car accident, and so what were you doing leading up to that? Yeah, I think you're trying to get from point A to point B. I think you read in an article, I read an article, you were pretty rushed and a little frenzied. So just, just talk about that day.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, I was in the, I was in the throes of uh, Ironman training and what I'd done is I'd qualified for the 270.3. So half Ironman world championships. And I hadn't put together a good race at the full iron distance yet, but All through 2014, had a really strong year, came into 2015 in a place I'd never been at that early in the year, just breakthroughs with my training. And I'd taken on some responsibilities at work as a coach. And then also as a a representative at the district office level for my school with the superintendent. And I'd ended up, the other coach didn't show up that day. And so I was like stressed out and then practice ran long because I was trying to coach all the different uh, athletes track and field. So I was trying to coach all these different subsets of the sport all by myself. And so practice ran a little long and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be late to a meeting with the superintendent of my district. And I was still a pretty young teacher. So that was like a really big deal in my head. Like, oh no. Um, so it was just super stressed out, but I, I think it's important also to paint this part of the picture. Literally the Sunday of that week, I went for a 140 mile bike ride and got off the bike and went for, a, I I think it was a seven or eight mile run. And it felt like I hadn't done anything just like felt super strong and casual. Just mm. that feeling of you know those seldom moments in life where you just almost feel invincible, right? right. like i i right. I can do I can do so much, and i I'm not getting tired. And then on a Tuesday went out my car window uh, in a rollover accident was ejected from the vehicle, should have died. Uh, one of my doctors said that if I was you know just a typical forty year old male, um I don't know why he chose forty, but in 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 what he said, he said, if you were a typical forty year year old male, you probably would have suffocated on the side of the road. Um, so it was good. You were in good shape. Um, but yeah, I ended up breaking nine ribs, collapsing a lung, broke my shoulder in two places and completely shredded the ACL and LCL of my right knee. And so, yeah, went from the invincibility of being able to ride a bike 140 miles and get off and go for a run and then just feel casual and hang out the rest of the day, uh, to not being able to get my own drink of water. And that, that was a pretty pretty life altering thing. And, and, and on top of that, like, when you think about it, if I'm training that much, you know, putting in these 30 hour training weeks on top of my job, all of my friendships were built around people. I biked with people. I swam with people. I ran with, I had no casual friends. They were all active friends. And so at the same time, I lose my primary identity, my primary coping mechanism You know, because when I would get angry, I would go for a run or a bike ride, right? Like my primary coping mechanism for life and access to my social network, all in a snap.
0: Wow. I mean, that's, you know, obviously when you go through something like this, you're in recovery and by definition in recovery, you're probably laid up, which is for you probably your worst nightmare because you want to do stuff. But certainly in that moment, you're physically capable of doing hardly anything. It probably felt like being in a straitjacket in uh, a dark room, uh, dark, dank, cold. I mean, think whatever the image is, it must have been almost a virtual nightmare. It's like, yeah, let's design a nightmare for Jason Hardrath. That was probably pretty close to perfection, right? It was probably just just awful being strapped there.
1: It was very, very close to worst case scenario, for sure.
0: And and one of the challenges when you're in that situation, you can't help think. Your mind probably goes pretty fast, faster than most of us. And it's racing with all these thoughts. I think I read that, you know, you didn't have a seatbelt on. You were trying to, you know, plug in your headphones to listen to some music. And I mean, did you go through all of these recrimination thoughts from, Why didn't I have my seatbelt on? Why was I reaching for those headphones to, if that coach had only turned up, I would have been able to finish sooner and I wouldn't have had to drive like a crazy man to get to the superintendent thing. And oh, by the way, why did I care so much about what he thought? If I was 10 minutes late, it probably would have been better. And did all those thoughts run through some self-recrimination others? Because as humans, we're human, wanting to blame others like the coach. And, you know, would all those thoughts go through your head?
1: I don't think there's any way that they couldn't. I would, I would, I would like to say, you know, I wish, I wish I could say it, I was perfect and how I handled it, but there were definitely, definitely a huge amount of doubts that ran through my mind. Like, you know, this is it, you know, like it's all over everything, everything I've built and worked toward and dreamed of, like it could all be out the window now. And in fact, you know, one of the first doctors I had, uh, when I brought up my passion for moving and my passion for triathlon and running was like, Oh, you'll probably just have to let that part of your life go. And then walks out of the room, you know? So it's like, had to face a lot of these difficulties and yeah, it's really easy to want to point blame elsewhere. But on the other hand, I also had enough self-awareness. And as a teacher, I literally do teach, like I, I taught like students of mine, like Usually we're not it's not one thing that just goes catastrophically wrong that messes us up. It's it's always a series of small overlooked things, right? Like if I'd had my seatbelt on, I would have been back at work the next day. I would have been fine. Um, you know, if like you mentioned, if I hadn't been reaching for the headphones or if I hadn't been rushed, if the other coach had shown up, like all these different things that were factors, and it was just the perfect storm. And I have to acknowledge that I fell prey to one of the very things I try to teach others not to. It's really easy to just get caught staring into your own glaring ineptitudes, right? Like, Oh, I suck at this. I suck at that. And, and, and never actually go do anything. And I do think that I'm a person that I've sort of made this decision in life that once, once uh, an idea reaches a place that it's like, yeah, that's possible. It's like, okay, go for it. Not, Oh, well now I better plan out all the details. It's, it's, it's possible. I have the necessary skills. It's unlikely that I'll, 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 you know, die because I was an idiot, go for it. Uh, <laughs> like that's kind of the equation in my head.
0: Makes sense. So let's shift to mountain climbing. So you suffered all these broken bones, ACL, LCL. Um, I think from what I've read, uh, you couldn't like lock your knee, which is necessary to be able to run, but there's something about climbing mountains and uphill. That's just easier for your knees. So that sounds very logical actually, but, uh, In terms of okay, what's the next step? Okay, well I can go up. You know, going up is not as painful, so fine. I'll just keep going up. You know, until I run out of run out of room and mountains. Eventually, unfortunately, even Everest (laughs) ends. But um, so talk about how you shifted to mountain climbing, and that's not your identity, obviously, as you I think alluded to, but it's your passion. So talk about that shift, because that must have been freeing. Okay, maybe I can't do triathlons. But there's something physical I do because I have to move. If I don't move, I won't be a happy camper. How did that all happen? Shifting to mountain climbing.
1: Absolutely. So you you, you you've done your research. Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a physical educator, so I had to understand biomechanics to as a portion of that learning to become a, a a PE teacher. And I was aware that you know when you run, in order to run efficiently, you have this moment where your knee locks out to basically be able to pull that uh stored energy in the giant rubber band that is our Achilles tendon that's that's what makes us efficient runners that's w- what gives all humans the ability to move with the efficiency we do and i couldn't i couldn't do that anymore so you know i could kind of hobble limp after after you know 4 or 5 months i could hobble limp my way down the road painfully but it would feel like a hard effort and i would move at half the speed i used to be able to run and that was kind of demotivating right and and also difficult to do and hard on the rest of my body to be in a constant limp, but I realized like, okay, I can walk up and down steep Hills. And, you know, when we, when we think about how we walk up or down something that's really steep, we tend to keep our knees bent. And so I didn't need to have that access to a completely straight knee. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just hike the local Hill and then started going up some of the mountains around. And then that led to wanting to go up the bigger, more difficult mountains in my area. And pretty soon I'm like tackling peaks in series and I'm running into peaks that have technical summit um, pinnacles. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm a rock climber now. And you know, I think this comes around to something you said about you know uh, taking up speaking, which is not natural to you. I'd been an endurance athlete who intentionally let my upper body atrophy to save weight. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I'm taking up rock climbing and i'm literally the worst person in the gym plus i've got a bum knee right like so i have you know limited use of one of my legs and i have weak upper body um so i'm literally the worst person in the gym and it it makes me think of this quote that i've seen float around you know be brave enough to suck at something new And I had to embrace that. And I'm lucky, right? I'm lucky because I'm a PE teacher and I get to teach kindergarten kids. I think they teach me as much as I teach them. You know, you hand a kindergarten kid a basketball, they'll miss a thousand shots and be no less excited to take the next one.
0: they, They don't have fear. At least it seems like we come out of the gate somewhat fearless. And then over time we get to be fearful. I mean, some of my kids, I've got one extrovert to a little bit more introverted, but in elementary school, they were different, you know, it's like, what happens? Where do they learn fear? And I mean, they're not fearful. I don't, don't misunderstand me, but you get what I, you've seen it in your kids. It's it's, you know.
1: it's our development of, of self-awareness, right? So self-awareness is a great tool to have, to be aware of ourselves and our strengths and our weaknesses. It's, it's powerful. It helps shape us. But the downside is hand in hand with it comes self-judgment. Yes. And we get quicker and quicker at judging stuff the older and older we get, where we get finally to a point as adults where we'll try something once for five minutes and go, Nope, not for me. It's like, what, you know, I always think about this when people tell me they tried running and they, they went out and (laughs) ran for like two weeks. I'm like, physiologically it takes two years for your body to adapt to the stresses of running. If you haven't done it priorly, like you haven't truly tried running until you've stuck with it for a certain amount of time and your body can adapt enough. You go, Oh wait, I actually can do this quite well. Um, And the same is true with the rock climbing, right? Like I had to abide sucking, you know, being the worst one. And I had to like push those thoughts of self-judgment away and just embrace the play, right? Another tool I learned from my kindergartners, just embrace the process of playing, regardless of how good I am at it. And, and, And then over time, like I can remember the first day someone came up to me after I climbed a route at the gym and was like, hey, could you teach me how to do this? And I'm like, wait, I've arrived. Like someone actually thinks I'm good at this. Um, and that was, a, that was a cool moment, but it takes, it takes time. And we have to be able to abide some tough feelings in order, to, in order to reach that place where finally we're like, okay, I've done something with this.
2: I have to jump in uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the name of this podcast originally was Abide Sucking.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: So you've got both the book originally and the podcast. Uh, um, This is the time in the show normally when I would say uh, the captain's turned on the fasten seatbelt signs. We have to land the plane pretty soon. Um, But because we have a school teacher with us and because he is at school as we're talking and he has to go back to class, um, I'm going to do this instead.
0: I want to get to kind of Bulger's List, because that's sort of one of the most recent things you've done, which is really the epitome of um, of just leaning into mountain climbing, doing something that initially you felt like you sucked at, because not enough upper body strength. So talk about what Bulger's List is, and you've completed it, I don't know, like a couple months ago. Uh, so talk about th- that whole deal.
1: Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, to make a quick transition here over a couple of years of, of rehabbing and, and doing all the exercises and, and letting the knee heal, um, running started to come back to me. I'm still not as fast as I used to be. Um, but I was able to start doing combining the two, right? So I was able to start go out and climb a mountain, run on a trail to another mountain and climb a second mountain in the same day. So I was able to have these big days out, just, you know, with two, blending two things that I loved. And then I discovered, these fastest known time records, fastest known time.com for people who want to check it out. You can see all sorts of awesome routes and uh, cool things people are doing. And I was like, well, this is what I'm already doing. Like, this is what I already love. I might as well run a stopwatch and see if I can break some records while I'm doing it. Um, And started ticking these things off one after the other decided, you know what I should, as silly as it sounds, I should go for a hundred of these records. You know, we, as humans, we're drawn to these big, silly, big round numbers. And so made this decision. Like I'm going to be the first person to do 100 of these. And so I start moving toward this goal over time. Right. And eventually people ask, well, what are you going to do for number 100? Like your hundredth record? what, What is it going to be? It's going to be something, it's going to be something unique, something big. Right. And I came across this Washington bulgers list, which is a list of the 100 tallest peaks in the state of Washington. And I'm like, Oh, 100 peaks for the 100th FKT. Hmm, something kind of poetic about that and, and, and FKT also ridiculous is,
0: is fastest. What was that fastest known time? Got it. Got it. Okay. Awesome.
1: So I decided like, again, you know, I was like, okay, this thing's really big. It's not like peak lists in some other States, um, where it's, you know, there are trailheads and trails and sure. everything's easy to access. Washington is a temperate rainforest. The North Cascades are some of the most brutal terrain in the 48 States. It was There's deep backcountry bushwhacking, route finding, orienteering, um, and fifth class rock climbing and glacier travel with crevasses. So it was this full package experience, this sort of, you know, being a teacher, a cumulative exam, if you will, of everything I'd pursued up till that point. And, you know, once I realized, you know, started doing the planning and realized it was possible, I was like, this is what I have to do. You know, is that, like I said, that sort of equation in my head, like once, once the pencil hit the paper and it made sense, it's like, yeah, no, this I'm going for it and managed to do it in 50 days, 23 hours and 43 minutes.
0: And that was way quicker than whatever the last time was. It was, what was the previous time? Like, was it? It was 410 days. Yeah. It's like over a year. I mean, that's stunning. So as we kind of bring it to a close, I mean, you've got some key principles I mean, what, what are some of the principles that you've sort of learned? I know from what I understand, I mean, one is celebrate uh, each moment. So just talk about, you know, because you work with uh, elementary school kids about helping them understand, you know, physical activity and mindset. Um, so, you know, you're pouring into the next generation, uh, future leaders, future folks in our society. So, and you speak at different places. Talk about some of these principles. So what do you, what do you mean by celebrate each moment?
1: So one thing I had to do as I was in the throes, the the deep beginnings, the darkness of my crucible is I had to let go of the shadow, living in the shadow of my prior self, right? I couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, we we already struggle comparing ourselves to others. And that's something we work to overcome to be like, no, it's not worth it to just compare myself to others. There's no joy there. And I had to do that with myself, right? Because it was, it would have cut my own motivation to constantly be like, well, I'm not able to do this like I used to. I'm not able to do that like I used to. Um, So instead, I I refer to, I still to this day refer to anything I did prior to the accident as my former life. It creates this mental clean cut where it's like, okay, I can go back to focusing on the process. And part of focusing on the process is whenever we start into something, we naturally celebrate each small win, each bit of progress we see. It's it's easy to lose that over time because you start to expect oh i should be able to run 10 miles or oh i should be able to run a business i should be able to write a book and so you don't celebrate those little breakthroughs anymore you just assume them and so what i had to do is go back in my mind to like oh this is as far as i've ever bent my knee this is this is as far as i've ever walked without pain this is the the most weight i've lifted this is like and noticing those things that i used to take for granted and celebrating them and being stoked at each little bit of gain because it's always our process that takes us wherever we want to be in life. Um, and I think that's easy to lose track that's of. So
0: good. How about two and three? So two is noticing progress instead of noticing how far you are from where you used to be. So talk about the whole uh, noticing progress part. What is that principle?
1: Um, it's it's basically, it, I wrapped it in with how I described so, the last one. Yeah, it's okay. is okay. just seeing, seeing, seeing how you're moving toward what you want instead of seeing the gap left to get where you want.
0: Got it, got it. Okay, yeah, seeing how far you've come, not how far you've got to go. It makes so much sense. And I think you've just talked about the third one, don't compare yourself to others uh, or who you were before. So there's so much wisdom because sometimes we can be held back about what we could have accomplished at a younger age or you know, uh, before an accident. We either wallow in the past or spend too much time daydreaming about what might happen in 20 years' time which may, I mean, who knows, nobody can predict their paths or life. And instead of just focusing on the moment and what's the next step. So kind of as we wrap up here, and you obviously, you know, you're investing in the next generation. What's kind of a a message of hope? Because, you know, we're all about how do you stop your worst day defining you? You know, how do you find a light at the end of the tunnel? How do you find, you know, pain amidst uh, the crucible, purpose out of pain? how do you find uh, some people have talked about what they've gone through physical tragedies as a blessing or a gift which i find hard to understand i've heard more than one person say say that so what's your overall message to both young people and people in general about what you've been through and what you've learned
1: for me it it comes down to it, it's it's that believing in the process and understanding that's all you ever own you know you you uh what's the old quote you can love your labor, but not the fruits of your labor. Um, you're never promised anything. You know, in the snap of a fingers, like I said, it can all be gone. And so continuing to be in love with your process. Be in love with the little intermediate goals. Be in love with the steps you can take to move forward. And then on top of that, I, I always remind myself, and I tell my students this as well, you're always preparing for opportunities you can't see yet. You're always preparing for opportunities you can't see yet. Did I know I was going to break the record and end up in mountaineering history for climbing the 100 tallest peaks in Washington? No, I didn't even know such a thing existed when I started down this path. I had no clue that I would end up doing this. But because I followed my process and I pursued one goal after another and I continued moving forward and finding things that made me feel alive, eventually I landed in a place where that next thing was something that rocked people's world. And it was an amazing experience for me at the same time.
2: So before we let you go, Jason, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the chance to let listeners know how they can find out more about you and your uh, exciting adventures.
1: Absolutely. Um, I have a website, uh, Jasonhardrath.com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, pretty easy to find in those two places. Um, and actually a super fun thing, a film crew followed me around for some of these records and for the, some of the peaks of this hundred, uh, Bulger, hundred peak Bulger's effort. And so, uh, the trailer has been released to a documentary that's going to be released in February. I'll make sure that you guys have that for the, the show notes. Um, so yeah, people can, can connect with me all those ways and hear a bit more of my story and see some of, some of the visuals on these things I talked about. It'll make your palms sweat. (laughs)
2: well thank you listeners for spending this time with us at beyond the crucible and until the next time we're together remember that your crucible experiences we know they're painful we know they're they're traumatic Uh, we know they can take a long time to get through but we hope you have heard in this episode in this conversation with jason that your crucible experiences don't have to be the end of your story in fact They can be the beginning of a brand new story, and that story can be the best story yet, because where it leads as you learn the lessons of your crucible and move forward, is to a life of significance.